Hello again, everybody. This is your host for Looking Back, Moving Forward podcast. This is Anthony Harris, and I am so glad that you were able to join me today. This should be our ninth episode in my podcast, and I am so delighted and just have to tell you, I am really enjoying sharing my thoughts and interviewing other people and just getting my message about racial equality and social justice out there. And I know some of you agree with me, some of you may disagree with me, but that's okay. But I am going to continue to pursue this discussion and, and, and encourage conversations wherever you happen to be. Because again, we got to talk about this stuff, folks. I mean, just ignoring it and burying our heads in the sands and and just pretending that racial issues and racial conflict and racial strife don't exist in our country, that's not going to get us there. We have to do the very uncomfortable, painful, sometimes inconvenient things to do to get us on the right track. And I'm just trying to do my part with this podcast. So what I want to do today is an extension of some things that I've talked about before uh, regarding racism. And I'm going to be a little bit more focused and specific about a couple of things, and that is, what is the impact on the mental health and the psychological well-being, the emotional well-being of people who have been victimized by racism, of people who have had exposure to racism, to systemic racism in particular. And when I think about the impact of systemic racism on the mental health of black people, there are five things that come to my mind. The first is the construct itself, systemic racism. What does it mean? It means primarily that there are multiple systems within our society that are responsible for the systematic oppression of black people. Those systems include the economic system, the criminal justice system, the judicial system, educational system, healthcare system, and the political system. Taken separately, each system by itself can be oppressive enough. But when taken in combination in a systemic way, that is most, if not all of them, simultaneously converging and engaging in oppressive behaviors, the devastation rises exponentially. For example, let's think about a single mom, we'll call her Jacqueline, who's struggling to make ends meet, and that's an economic issue. Jacqueline dropped out of school to care for her mother, who is confined to a bed from illnesses related to exposure to lead poisoning. That's an education and healthcare system issue. Jacqueline has a 17-year-old son, we'll call him Malik, who was racially profiled by police while walking down the street at night, alone, wearing a hoodie. He was stopped because he looked suspicious and allegedly resembled a mugging suspect. He subsequently was arrested because, according to the arresting officers, he failed to respond to a police command to provide proper identification. He had none. That's the criminal justice system. Malik is unable to understand the charges against him because he has had undiagnosed ADHD since the first grade. That's an educational system issue. And as I said earlier, there there are related health issues due to the toxic water in their home, which affects the health of all of the family members. And that's a health care issue. Malik's bail is $50,000, which means that his mother has to come up with at least $5,000 to bail him out. The criminal justice system, which she does not have. 
Malik's inexperienced court-appointed attorney does only the bare minimum for him, and Malik is convicted on assault charges related to the alleged mugging incident. He is sent to prison, a judicial system issue. And think about all of these systems have converged on this one family, one family delivering a devastating blow to everybody in the house. And this scene is played out every single day in our country. And young men, especially young black men, end up being just another statistic. Two, systemic racism has discernible and devastating effects on the lives, that is, the minds, bodies, and spirits of black people. Research studies have been very consistent in dealing, detailing the persistent or even occasional exposure to racism can lead to an array of physiological and psychological issues, including hypertension, obesity, low self-esteem, diminished sense of self-worth, rational and irrational fears, depression, heart disease, and a host of other psychosomatic illnesses. Now, exposure to racism can range from someone saying, as a white person told my daughter recently, you're pretty, or a black girl, to trying to convince, as I did along with two black colleagues unsuccessfully, that when an academic department loses all of its black faculty three in three years, and nobody bats an eye. Trying to convince that that is symptomatic of a racist culture. In both instances, an emotional, physical, or financial cost was extracted. Three, when I think about the impact of racism on the lives of black people, I think about a friend of mine who lives in Jackson, Mississippi, and you've heard his story here on, on my podcast. And I'll call him Heck, and that's what he calls himself. Heck was the youngest person to be arrested during the Freedom Rides in Mississippi in the early 1960s. At the time, Heck was only 13 years old, and today he is 71 years old. After being arrested for being in the wrong place at the wrong time, Heck was sent to the notorious Parchment Penitentiary in Sunflower County, Mississippi, where he was thrown into a six-foot-by-eight-foot prison cell with death row inmates. And being on death row, those inmates had nothing to lose by taking advantage of a frightened 13-year-old boy. And they did. Those racist prison officials intentionally assigned Heck to a death row cell for one reason and one reason only. And that it was to scare the living daylights out of him. And guess what? They succeeded. For three days, his mother had no idea whether her son was dead or alive. Just imagine the anguish and stress that that mother experienced wondering what could have happened to her son. And heck, equally anguished and stressed, not knowing when or if he would ever see his mother again. Now, as we fast forward to more recent years, heck, he shared this in his episode on our podcast last time. He began thinking more about what happened to him when he was in that death row prison cell. Because in the process of writing this book, pushing forward some unexpected dark memories that he thought he had repressed over the past six decades, started to haunt him, leading to mild depression, nightmares, and many of the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, my point is this. Not only is systemic racism devastating and detrimental to the physical and psychological well-being of oppressed people, 
But as you can see from Heck's case, its effects can last a lifetime. Four, another element to consider is that for those who engage in resistance and protests against racism, those individuals can experience the deleterious effects of systemic racism also. Take the example of courageous and caring individuals who have made a commitment to fighting for racial equality. The source of that commitment might be the teachings from their religious faith that they should love their neighbors as they love themselves, and that their faith commands them to resist evil and fight for justice. Or it could be someone who simply says, enough is enough. No more excuses for not being anti-racist. No more excuses for turning a blind eye to injustice or a deaf ear to the cries of the oppressed. Whatever the motivation, each day they're peacefully marching, protesting, and demonstrating for social justice. And each day they hear and read about the politicians who label them terrorists, radicals, extremists, even un-American for exercising their constitutional rights to protest. Some hostile passerbys may drive by and yell racial epithets or something nasty at them, or they may even throw things at them, or show up armed with the sole intention of intimidating them. Now, regular exposure to that level of racial hostility can lead to some of the same symptoms experienced by people who are actual victims of violent racial attacks. Finally, I want to point out that one does not have to be an actual victim of, a, of an overt violent racist attack in order to suffer emotionally and psychologically, nor do they have to be actively engaged in lawful, peaceful protest marches and demonstrations. There's something called vicarious traumatization. That means that one can vicariously experience trouble, trauma through the suffering of another person. And of course, the best example is George Floyd. I ask you, how many people suffered some emotional pain after watching that man lose his life? When we all watched Derek Chauvin press the entire weight down on the neck of Mr. Floyd for 8 minutes and 46 seconds as he repeated over 25 times, I can't breathe, we all had a visceral reaction. Although it was not us who was being executed, it was not us who couldn't breathe, and it wasn't us who called out to our dead mother to help save us. Yet, we all experienced the emotional pain of the moment. And for many here in this country and around the world, that pain, the result of vicarious traumatization, can and possibly will last a lifetime. The same thing holds true when the video showed Ahmaud Arbery being shot in Georgia by Travis McMichael. Most of us felt sick to our stomachs watching that young man out for a jog being chased and gunned down by a couple of vigilantes. But over time, some people become numb to such events. Some choose to deny that it even happened or it was the victim's fault. Others have the privilege of not even thinking about these events because it doesn't affect their lives. But thank God there are those of us who are willing to shout it from the rooftop. Enough is enough. Buoyed by the timely advice from the late John Lewis that we should get into good trouble, necessary trouble. So what do we do? What can we do? If you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, 
and the only words that can come out come from our mouths are enough is enough then we ask ourselves and we ask others how can i how can we become anti-racist and that's a that's a challenging question to answer and i've talked about that before in previous episodes but i want to encourage you and i want to recommend a few books to you if you're interested in reading about some of the the ways one can become anti-racist again it's not a a road easily traveled it's not one that is necessarily uh, a lot of fun involved in it but it's it's something that one who wants to take that journey has to start here and i i recommend a few books and many of you have probably either read these books or heard about heard about them one is called white fragility White Fragility, and the author is Robin D'Angelo. Another one by Debbie Irving is called Waking Up White. Waking Up White by Debbie Irving. And How to Be an Anti-Racist. That's the third book, How How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. I urge you to read those books, listen to those books, whatever you can do, and, and find out if there are some some wisdom there for you, some aha moments, some inspiration, some something that will come to you and say, yeah, I get it now. I get it. This is this is something that I can do. And, and perhaps somebody is presenting a perspective that you perhaps have not thought of before. Because let me tell you, people, the issues of race and racism are not going to go away by themselves. We cannot wish them away. We cannot hope them away. We cannot pretend that they don't exist. And if we continue down that path of pretending that it doesn't affect me, that it's just something that we should just get over and move on. I read recently where somebody talked about, as far as they were concerned, slavery is over and that's the, that's the end of the story. And anything that's happened to black people as uh, following the Emancipation Proclamation is on them and they shouldn't... Um, the rest of the country shouldn't be concerned with that. And that's a that's a false position to take. And, you know, it's, it's something that I hear from time to time, but it, it, it speaks to that people who say those th- kinds of things. It, it speaks to their ignorance. It speaks to their indifference. It speaks to their their sense of denial. And, and just, uh, they just don't, they just don't want to talk about these things. They don't want to hear about these things because it makes them feel uncomfortable. And I want you to believe that it's okay to be uncomfortable. That's a good place to be. If you're feeling uncomfortable, pat yourself on the back because that's, a, that's where you ought to be. And you want to move from being uncomfortable to being more comfortable. And, and that's, the, that's the framework that I encourage you to, to think about. And I'll say just one last thing before I close. And something that has really stuck with me since I saw it. And you've heard my... Um, episode on, on white privilege and it's it's so profound and it hits the nail on the head and I'm sure some other people have have read this statement and I wish I had coined it myself but there's something out there in the public domain and it is this it has to do with again white privilege and the statement is when you have been privileged for so long equality feels like oppression to you Think about that. When you've been privileged for so long, equality starts to feel like oppression. And I think that speaks to this notion that 
where some people I hear, particularly white people, say they, they, they're fearful that black people are getting too much power, that the, the, the balance of power in this country is going to shift more to ethnic minorities, and, 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 and they are afraid of what's going to happen. And really what's happening is equality is starting to happen. We're going to see more and more evidence of equality starting to happen. And then when people see equality, they, they, they put a new frame around that and say, oops, that means oppression. I am losing. Please, please, that's not the case. That's not going to happen. And one of the reasons we can ensure that, one of the ways we can ensure that that doesn't happen is that we have, we have to have conversations. We have to talk about this. And then after, after we have talked and we've had these conversations, then we have to move to the action phase and, and, and know that, that is the, that's equally difficult. Talking about it is, about is hard enough, but actually going out and, and doing things, doing concrete things, uh, things that will make a difference, things that are uncomfortable and um, somewhat challenging. That's where we're going to uh, make a difference, I think. But I, I hope you will join me in, in just being out there and being committed to this, this effort. I am, and um, I just hope we can... We don't know what the timeline is. We don't know if it's going to happen after November. We don't know whether it's going to happen in, in two years, two months. But quite honestly, I do feel some change sweeping across our country, some, some new viewpoints and some new allies coming aboard who, because of some recent incidents, have begun to say enough is enough. And I congratulate, commend those individuals and welcome them to the struggle, recognizing that that struggle is going to be difficult. You're going to have people who will push back against you. You will have people who will say ugly things to you. And you will have to be prepared to deal with the stress and the um, and, and the challenges that and obstacles that people will place before you as you are going about your business. Uh, so trying to be an anti-racist because some people will interpret your your journey on anti-racism as as being something that is an extremist uh, type of thing that you're a radical that you are a terrorist even or that you're un-American and and don't buy that. There's nothing more American than fighting for truth and justice. And um, so don't let anybody convince you that fighting for equality and justice is, is not the right thing to do. It is the right thing to do. And if I could ever be any help to you, please let me know. And with that, I'm going to ask you again, if you have some um, comments or questions and you want to communicate with me, um, aharris007 at yahoo.com. I'd love to hear from you. And uh, until we meet again, until we talk again, I'm going to say goodbye, stay safe, and God bless.